one of the things that I want you guys to consider as we go through today, just because I, I think it's important for all of the things that we, we cover in these research reviews, every single study that I bring up is, is one study. And sometimes I'll, I'll kind of bring in a couple other thoughts or, or compare a couple things, but you remember to keep it in the context of the source, the timing, what they cover. A lot of times, if you go back to these original studies, the researchers themselves will say, you know, here are the limitations of our study. Here, here's what we didn't do. Uh, here's what we, we, you know, now we, we think would be a good place to head into some further research. So, you know, never take the things that I say or that you perceive from a, a research review like this as, oh my gosh, now I have the answer. You know, hopefully it's just one good piece of the puzzle. But uh, I, I wanted to intro this in that way because they did some really, really good things with this study, but it's still kind of limited in what they could study. So this was in the International Journal of Obesity. And to be in a journal of this magnitude, you've gotta you gotta have some chops. I mean, this is not this is not just grad students trying to, you know, get a grade. This is something where they're really looking at some serious inquisition. Um, it was also reported in the Journal of Nature and, and it was in 2015. So it's it's rather current. And one of the things I like about current studies is just simply that they have had more time to review the latest research. It, it's kind of fun. Last last week, I think I mentioned as I, as I went through a list of studies of citations, uh, there was one they had pulled up from 1967. And, and it's, it's amazing when a study like that stands the test of time, because that means they really did something groundbreaking that people are still citing it. It's, it was pivotal. It's obviously been affirmed in several different ways. But there's also an advantage of something that's really new and current. And, and sometimes even as you may see here, they have the latest, greatest technology for research, some things that may not have, have been available before. But what they were looking at was the, 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 um, the timing of calories. And what they wanted to specifically see is when you have a large meal, and, and they, were, they were really looking at the age-old question, should you have a big breakfast or not a big breakfast? Is it bad to eat calories at night or is it not bad to eat calories at night? So they studied the difference between eating a meal at eight in the morning or the exact same meal at 10 o'clock at night. And they, they wanted to look at a resting metabolic rate. They wanted to look at some of the biochemical markers, like what's happening with, with fatty acids in the bloodstream, glucose, and so forth. Uh, even the, uh, the, the, the thermic effect of food, the dietary, um, you know, thermic effect of food. So let me, let me, let me, first of all, see if there's anything here. Uh, just as an introduction, if you guys haven't been reading this already, I'll just kind of skim through this. Uh, early insulin secretion after a meal is significantly higher in the AM. These are some of their notes of just like before we even do the study, here are just some physiological facts that we know. Uh, insulin sensitivity decreases later in the day, uh, largely due to our circadian rhythms. Uh, decreased concentration of hormones and peptides that regulate hunger and satiety later in the day. So again, uh, just through biological evolution, uh, it seems like uh, our species having kind of woken up in the morning and 
you get, you're getting ready for the day. You probably, you know, nobody necessarily eats at night if you're not a nocturnal animal. So your body's ready for food. You're in that fasted state. And so that seems to be how we are primed. So let's, uh, let's get into some of the things that they looked at. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read this, you know, kind of carefully just so you guys have it. So some of the things I will just copy and paste because I think their narrative is important. However, data in the literature often show contrasting results with differences in exercise level, hours of sleeping, antecedent diets, meaning what they're eating, you know, prior to the test, variation in the duration of the fasting state. So that's going to be key in just a minute as I explain it to you. Presence of comorbidity uh, and low numbers of subjects enrolled acting as confounding factors. Indeed, the ideal setting to study diurnal variation in ex energy expenditure is to measure post-absorptive resting metabolic rate under the same conditions every time. So that was what they really wanted to do in the study. Create the same thing, the same context. And so what they did, if you were eating at eight in the morning or you were eating at 10 at night, they made all of those subjects fast for eight hours before each one because they wanted that internal state to be the same. That's a pro and a con because how many people eating at 10 o'clock at night would have fasted for eight hours before that meal. So there are some nuances to pick apart. Uh, the aim of our study therefore was to uh, compare the, the calorimetric and metabolic response to identical meals. Um, it's interesting they say a low carbohydrate meal because it really wasn't as, I, as I'll show you. It may be just kind of their standards. But uh, they picked out 20 subjects, 10 male, 10 female, all fairly young. Uh, pretty healthy, you know, BMI in the healthy range. And as I said, they, they compared these meals at 8 a.m. and 10 p.m., eight hours fasting prior. They standardized the diet, physical activity, rest, meal timing, did everything they could to make sure it was a, a really good study. A randomized crossover trial means that both of the groups got to do it both ways, and, and they got to see the differences, um, you know, with, with each person. Now, here's where, here's where they really did some things well. I need to move my video screen here out of the way. Uh, they did 30, 60, and 120-minute post-meal uh, calorimetry, and, and that means they put them in a little chamber, like, you know, where a gas mask, and they can measure their, their oxygen and carbon dioxide levels, even thermic changes in their breath. So they're looking at resting metabolic rate changes. They did blood draws every 30 minutes for uh, three hours, and they even did a 24-hour pre- and post-urine collection because they were looking at nitrogen levels and so forth and, and just anything that would have been different in, in the digestion and absorption of nutrients. The meal, here's why it's interesting that they, they called this a low-carbohydrate meal, and I think you guys may have a chuckle, as I did. So... First of all, it's almost a 1,200 calorie meal, which for a lot of us in our world, in nutrition, dieting, performative sport, physique sport, you know, that, that's, a, that's a monster of a meal for a lot of people. For those in the general population, if you're, if you're going to a restaurant or you're even just picking up a sandwich and baked chips at Subway, it's, it's probably about 1200 calories. I mean, that's a pretty standard meal for, you know, if you were to go get a six inch sub, you know, loaded and a bag of chips, but it was still almost 40% carbs 
and for some reason they called that a low carb meal. But uh, I think because through just just dietetic standards, it's usually around sixty percent of calories and carbs. Uh, but here's what they here's what they had in that. I think I wrote this down. Uh, maybe I didn't. Oh yeah, I did right there. The uh, the white bread, the the ham, cheese. Uh, juice and 25 gram supplement. And then, uh, as I said, one of the ways they wanted to standardize this is they made sure that they all had the exact same meal eight hours before they did this meal for the test, except they just left out the protein supplement. And, uh, and then they had them fast. So again, what they were checking was the, uh, the basal metabolic rate and resting metabolic rate right before they did the, the meal. And then they would uh, test it, as you saw, you know, every 30 minutes for the next three hours. They were looking at, at diet-induced thermogenesis, as I mentioned, glucose, fat, oxidation, nitrogen, and, and all the respiratory gases. So now here are the results. Um, I, I, you guys may kind of expect this, those of you who who view a lot of research, but when you look at, so the morning and the evening, if you look at the number, the N number up here, you know, because it was a cross randomized trial, um, they, you know, each each of the 20 subjects did both. So they they all got to be involved in the morning and the evening. So, so the fasting, the average fasting metabolic rate, um, which is, Probably a nice little side note here, both men and women, all between 20 and 35 years old, all relatively active and healthy, look at their combined resting metabolic rate, 1500 calories. Oh my gosh, Joe, I'm supposed to be eating 3000 calories a day. Health Magazine says if I don't eat 3000 a day, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna lose all my muscle, my metabolism will crash. Well, here's the actual average human metabolism when tested. So I'll leave that to the side. As I said, just a little note. Uh, but then here's, here's where that diet-induced thermogenesis comes in. So once they have this big meal, and you guys know when you have a big meal, like you get, you get hot, you get sweaty, you're in a big burger, some ribs at the restaurant, and, and you just, just feel, feel that body temperature go up, that's diet-induced thermogenesis. Well, when you consume that meal in the morning, that's a pretty substantial difference when it goes up from about 1600 calories to 1900 calories, and then it only goes up from about 1500 calories to 1750 in the evening. So pretty big difference. And I, I think, again, I have to move you guys around our, our little thumbnails here. Are, is there a P? Yeah, the P value over there. So look at that P value, 0.98. That's a pretty high p-value, meaning that the correlation is, is very, very high. So they're, you know, they're very confident in other, confident, in other words, in their, their results. Um, then look at the actual, again, dietary induced thermogenesis. You would just have to do the math, 327 calories versus 237. Uh, the fasting metabolic rate, so, or resting metabolic rate as just a percent you see is, um, you know, about the same, except again, your metabolism is just a little bit higher in the morning, which may be of note. Uh, I, I, it's, it's almost so inconsequential there, but at the same time, we, we tend to think, man, I've had food during the day or I'm up during the day. I'm awake. My metabolism would be, would be higher. It's actually a little stronger in the morning. And then it does, as you see, again, bump up a little bit higher in the morning than in the evening. 
so the rate of, of diet induced thermogenesis is higher. Um, let's skip down here. Carbohydrate oxidation. This will come in, in handy as I show you the next couple of slides is double more, almost triple. So your car, your ability to oxidize and use carbohydrates is higher in the morning. Now, let me, well, I should save some of my, my thoughts to the end on, on how to compare these things, but just keep that in mind. So some of these nuances and differences here, because I, I do want to come back to the fact that they made these people fast and they're looking at the, the food intake at 10 o'clock at night. It's not like dinner. It wasn't at, I don't know when you guys eat, but six, seven, eight o'clock. Um, it was 10 o'clock at night. Um, fat oxidation was just uh, a little bit, well, actually substantially higher in the evening. So it seems like we oxidize fat a little bit more in, in the evening, uh, if you want to take this study as representative of that. But let's, let's get into some of these, uh, these other graphs here. And sorry when I blow these things up to, so they're viewable, they're a little bit uh, pixelated here. But just glucose levels post-meal. So you see uh, before any food whatsoever in that fasting state, that's the basal. Then they test them just when they start eating. Another thing I think I had written down, but I did not uh, point it out to you guys, is that they, they made them all kind of pace themselves for the meal. So everybody got done eating within 25 to 30 minutes. And so it's not like somebody like me could eat it all in 12 seconds and somebody else is still eating it slowly and chewing it 30 minutes later. They wanted to make sure that everybody, you know, ate about the same way, you know, again, for just digestion standardization. So by the time you get to about, uh, you know, 60 minutes, that's where you start seeing stuff hit your bloodstream. So for the first 30 to 45 minutes, you know, obviously mechanically in your stomach, you're, you're, you're mechanistically digesting this food, but a lot of it's not hitting your bloodstream until it gets into your, in your small intestine. And then there's, there's not really a gigantic shoot. Um, you know, again, 1200 calories, 40% of it come from carbs. I might've expected blood sugar to go up a little bit more, but I think it's because it's a fasted state, you know, in both cases, morning or evening, they hadn't eaten for eight hours. So blood sugar never even got above a hundred for those uh, in the evening, but it was higher. Remember how I talked to you guys about in the morning sometimes when you eat, uh, especially if you're active at all, if you're doing some cardio or something, how you can just get hungrier a lot sooner. Your body's kind of flying through that food. Man, these people who um, you know ate in the morning, it did not even budge uh, their, I mean, their blood sugar did not go above 90. So two things I want you to note here, obviously the evening we're not utilizing carbs quite as well, but it's not that much of a difference. It's not off the chart. You did not see this huge insulin spike. And so I think that's going to be a good application point. Then just as you would assume glucose would correlate exactly to insulin. So at the same time around the 60, you know, between 30 and 60 minutes, you start seeing insulin surge up to start taking care, to start disposing of this glucose. And then uh, insulin is always going to correlate to glucose levels and, and just food in general, you know, the overall calorie load. Um, so, you know, that's just to, uh, to, to bring those blood sugar levels down, utilize those macronutrients. Um, and then fatty acids, I'm, I'm glad they looked at triglycerides and free fatty acids. 
uh, same thing. They, they just, you know, through the, the digestive time, your, your body almost because of insulin. So, so it, it, I don't know if this will interest you or not, but, uh, the, the lipids in their bloodstream started out at a certain level. And then even after eating a 1200 calorie meal, they actually went down. And that's just the mechanism of, of insulin. It's, it's just to store this energy. Uh, now, one of the things that you also have to know about this study is they, to do the uh, ca calorimetry type testing, you, you have to be stationary. And so they're in the lab, they eat this meal, and then they're, they're having blood draws and so forth for three hours. So they're not on a track, they're not running around, they're not chasing their kids, they're not in their office under stress, walking around. They're, they're just in the lab undergoing these tests, a, a lot of them being you know literally on their backs. And yet, just because of the mechanism of insulin, you know, the, the triglycerides are coming down, meaning they're going somewhere and they're being stored. They're being stored as body fat, at least resynthesized as body fat. Uh, same thing with triglycerides, but a little bit more stable. Triglycerides are a, a little bit of a denser form of free fatty acids. If you could consider, you know, lipids kind of like carbs where you have simple and complex triglycerides, uh, you know, have, have different bonds and, and they have glycerol, um, you know, as, as part of their, their molecular structure. And so they're, they're just a little bit denser. They're not really going in that many places where your body uses free fatty acids more as energy, uh, specifically to turn into glucose through your liver as you need them as a, as a secondary energy source. So not a lot to really look at there, except again, that uh, in evening, the metabolism, the we already know resting metabolism just doesn't go up quite as high. Dietary induced thermogenesis doesn't go up quite as high with that evening meal because of presumably circadian evolutionary rhythm. Um, but there's just that little bump and then it stabilizes kind of quickly. So it seems like most of the... Um, the dance here is around our ability to use carbohydrates. So what I want you guys to tell me as, as nice junior scientists, uh, you know, what does this mean? Because there wasn't necessarily, let me, let me come back up here to the real values of the study. And I want to I want to determine: Is there anything we can take from this study? Was it significant at all? And I will say that the researchers thought there there was. Number one is they compared their study to other studies that had been done. They did roll through a lot of comparative citations. Um, they said, you know, we really do like ours because we we set it up to really compare what we wanted to compare, and that is you know, in the exact same fasted scenario, you know, randomized cross, you know, populated study, uh, we, we really got some incredible data, but they did admit it's not necessarily how everybody would choose to eat. And so they would admit this is one biochemical part of the puzzle, but not necessarily, um, you know, giving us something to really move on. But here, here, here's what I would say first as um, just, just anthropologically making some of the same conclusions they did, and then anecdotally going to my own conclusion. I have mentioned to you guys in our daily chats that I, I'm pretty sure it's not just 
in my head, but throughout a 20 year competitive bodybuilding career, about half of the times I was getting ready for a contest, I would train and do my hardest, most intense activity in the morning. And about half of my competitive career, I would do it in the late afternoon or evening. And for some reason, when I trained in the morning and did my hardest work in the morning, meaning I was also supporting that training with the highest amount of pre and post-workout food, that's my biggest priority when dieting, uh, I always got leaner and retained more muscle in the morning. Even though I don't feel my best training in the morning, I don't prefer to train in the morning, for some reason, I lost more body fat and I retained more muscle. I think this this could explain that. I, I think the fact that uh, from that evolutionary biology perspective, we simply are primed to have our most energetic time of the day in the morning. So sun breaks, pineal gland is stimulated. Pineal gland is part of the whole, you know, brainstem amygdala structure. That's what controls some of those, those hormones and peptides that control uh, hunger and satiety and, and gives us those prompts to, to go feed, to hunt and gather. And so, you know, even though today, a lot of people, me included, would say total calories matter most, total calories in a week matter most, total calories in a day matters most, um, you know, do what you need to do. If, if you want to get involved in intermittent fasting and not eat until lunch, if that works for you, that's fine. If you want to, you know, squeeze things in an eight hour window, that's fine. What, as we like to say, the best diet is the one you can stick to. But if you're really looking at the biochemistry, it seems like having your greatest amount of food in the morning. So we we have to go back to saying, I guess grandma was right after all, you know, eat eat a big breakfast, junior, you know, got to get, got to fill up your belly so you can be smart and think in school. Uh, That's actually right. And because you're going to be your most metabolically efficient in the morning, maybe that is a great time to train, even if it is just cardio, because you could prime this pump even more. Something they did not look at, which would be interesting, is let's say the study was set up the exact same way. What if they did a really good cardio at seven in the morning and then had this meal versus nine at night and then had this meal? Uh, What if they had a training session? Um, You know, what if... What if they looked at this, but they compared it as most of us would actually eat? Like, like say, okay, we all, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say we all, but the average person would eat breakfast in the morning. Not everybody eats a 1200 calorie meal at 10 o'clock at night. And not everybody would fast for eight hours before they eat a 1200 calorie meal at 10 o'clock at night. So what if they really did this kind of study in a way that's checking it at six or seven in the evening? And what if it wasn't with eight hours of fasting? I think that would be interesting, but I think it would actually accelerate the results. I I think it would actually show more differentiation because then at that point, um, you know, I I think you would see it even, even further dampening of that metabolic need in the evening. So let me, uh, let me come back to my, my final questions here that I will restate and then I'll, I'll, take everything off of the share so we can, we can chat face to face. So as I said, even though there were what I would consider substantial differences in showing the, the diet induced thermogenesis and the resting metabolic rate change 
which would affirm their hypothesis, which is we should have our biggest meals in the morning and maybe we don't need that much food at night. And so, you know, kind of doing the old school method may be exactly what we're supposed to do. There still wasn't a substantial change. If you remember those glucose level changes and so forth, it shows that we're pretty resilient. If your calories are being controlled for the day, because these people remember minus the protein supplement of hundred calories, 25 grams worth of protein, they literally had two meals in these days, the 1200 calorie meal, then the 1100 calorie meal without. So it was a pretty standard amount of food for somebody not dieting. And yet you didn't see that much change in the glucose levels. You didn't see that much change in the, uh, the, the lipid levels. And so I would say, even though you get a little bit more bang for your buck in the morning, it's just not that starkly different, but maybe over time it would be, you know, you add up those differences daily over six months and, and maybe it truly is. So I'm going to stop the share here guys and bring you back and, uh, get some discussion going. Let's let, tell, tell me what you guys think. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. So in this study, did they mention or say what exactly it was that they were eating? Because I would think that the quality of the meal would have um, an effect on that as well. Yeah, that was in the slide. Um, I'll, I'll go through it again here. I've got it. So it was 100 grams in weight of white bread, 100 grams of ham, 50 grams of cheese, 200 milliliters of fruit juice, and 25 grams of a protein supplement. So it was 1,168 calories, 30% protein, 31% fat, 39% carbs. So um, it just kind of looks like a big old ham sandwich and juice. <laughs> In, in, a, in, a, in a protein supplement along with that. Okay, and then I do have a question about the glucose. Um, they When they check their glucose in the morning, what would you say is like a standard across the board level having fasted overnight um, for a glucose level? You know, the, 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 the normative standard that we all wanna see is anything under 100 or under 99, but it's typically between 70 and 90 is what you want to see for people. Um, and, and it seems like everybody was right in that range. And then that, that was one of the things that was, you know, a, a little bit startling to me was that nobody went even above 100 uh, when, or I should say nobody, but at least the, the cumulative data but uh, yeah, you know, that's another great uh, question, Amanda. So, so, you know, kind of high glycemic, you know, fruit juice, white bread, um, you know, they're getting 30% of the calories from fat and that's coming from the, the, the meat and the cheese. Uh, it would be interesting to show something a little bit healthier, but I, I think you would just see what you would expect to see, you know, something healthier. It would just kind of mute those numbers, but maybe there would still be a, a gap, you know, you know, the same, maybe not. But, um, you know, what, what if, what if they had 2000 calories, you know, would that widen it and, and you're even more metabolically, you know, or you're, you're still the same level of efficient in the morning. Like there, there could be a line there between how much people can eat. That would of course be dependent on their health status, everybody individually, you know, I'm sure when you're looking at those average 
aggregate numbers, you know, some people were probably kind of outliers high. Some people may have been really low. But any, anything yeah. else stand out? Stacy, were you going to say something? Well, I'm, I so I had to switch over to my laptop because I couldn't get on my phone. So I missed a little bit of that one uh, chart that you have. But I was wondering, like the diff, the slight difference in the fat oxidation rates. Um, let's say that you're trying to manage your cholesterol through diet before you get onto a statin or something like that. Would this help? Like this kind of, is it just enough that it could help them, you know, make sure that they have a fuller meal during the day and kind of taper down at night? Like, can you walk me through that? Yeah, that, that's a really, really good point in, in the fact that this was a two meal a day test and, and they were done seven days apart, you know, so they could kind of wash them out to, to be cross randomized. And um, if, if you did eat that way, you would certainly have better glucose and lipid disposal. You know, that's part of the biggest values in, in our Friday research review. <clears throat> we've got a couple sessions that we did on the effects of fasting and the different forms of fasting from, you know, one meal a day fasting to alternate day fasting and all that. And that's something that happens very, very rapidly. As soon as you stop just, you know, snacking all day long and constantly putting stuff in your bloodstream, you, you really reduce cholesterol and lipids. Um, I think I shared this with you, Stacy, but, uh, or at least in one of these sessions, one of, one of my biggest turnarounds I've ever seen, I'll, I'll give you two examples. A guy came to me and his triglyceride level was 900. Okay. That's like your heart trying to pump pudding through your blood vessels. And in 30 days, of just coming down to what any of us would probably have suggested as a macronutrient range. And he's working out every day and, you know, obviously not like a marathon runner, but he's just getting started. So he goes from nothing to a 30 day introductory period. His triglycerides went from 900 to 90 in 30 days. Yeah. Wow. And, and then another client of mine was a physician who was a vegetarian marathon runner on statins, 45 years old, and even doing all of that to try and control his cholesterol, his cholesterol was over 400 because he had the, the, the disease of hypercholesteremia. And just by, you know, cause he was vegetarian to low protein, you know, marathon runner or, or distance runner, he would do that to try and, you know, just beat this, this disease. And I got him reducing his mileage on the road just to add some, some weight training so we could at least involve more muscle tissue than just his legs and increased his protein a little bit, brought his carbs down. And, and we got his cholesterol uh, down to around 200. That's so, good. Yeah. I mean, a huge change for somebody already on cholesterol lowering meds and, and already, already 145 pounds at a low body fat level. Well, I, I have a client, she's four foot 11, 101 pounds. And she was just diagnosed with high cholesterol and trying to manage it first with diet. And I had her do the uh, hip to waist ratio to see if that confirmed. And it absolutely did like her, she's carrying, you know, mostly the fat is in her midsection. So we are making adjustments with her diet uh, significantly, but you know, you would never look at this four foot 11, 101 pound person 
and think that they could possibly fall in very active into that range. But, you know, she falls into that, that, <clears throat> that puddle of people that I seem to collect as clients that eat a lot of healthy fat mm. um, and just have gone too far with yeah. avocados and the almonds and the olive oil. And now here's where we are. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, good fat is still fat. And if you really are married to the notion that you just need that much, you, you just have to be virtually keto because you, you can't give, as soon as you give your body any carbohydrates, you're going to use that first. And then even that good fat is just going to be stored as fat. And so, um, you know, you're, you're kind of painting yourself into a corner. But this, this, this study, I have an, another little anecdotal story to at least tell you why it's confirmational in my mind. I had mentioned to some of you guys who are on our daily chats Monday through Friday that two months ago, I switched back to training in the mornings. As much as I hate doing that, I, I, I'm doing it and I'm finding some value in just the, the whole discipline of it and getting up early and, and I, I like it, but I hate it. And here is one of the things that I noted right away is, I, I mean, the first week when I was squatting and deadlifting in the morning, I just felt like 40 to 50% of my strength was gone. And it just, it did not feel like it was going to come back. I just thought, man, is this, is this really the cost of training in the morning? And then I was talking to a client of mine and uh, it's really funny because now he's like teaching me, you know, he's like, well, what are you eating? And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm rushing in here in the morning. And so I don't want to like a lot of food. And so I'm, you know, eating a granola bar or something, you know, maybe 140, 150 calories, 25 grams of carbs. He said, well, you know, dummy, what you should eat more. And I, I said, I don't think it's food. Like I just, I feel it's like orthopedic. I just feel like my body's not warmed up and that kind of thing. So as a test all week long, I've gone from 25 grams of carbs pre-workout in the morning to 75. I've tripled it my strength just went back up to the moon. And what I'm finding is now I'm just naturally eating less even later in the day. I'm not even that hungry at night, 12, 16 hours later. My breakfast or post-workout meal doesn't have to be quite as high, which I, I did tap that down a little bit to make up for the carbs I'm having before. So without even realizing it, I just inadvertently kind of did what this study showed. I'm having more of my food in the morning when I'm most metabolically active. And then I'm really superimposing metabolic activity by training and your body's just more efficient at oxidizing those carbs anyway. So why not fuel your morning workout to have that great, great, um, you know, training and then, you know, taper off later in the day when due to circadian rhythms and, you know, hypothalamus activity and so forth, you're just, your body's tapering down for sleep. And so, I mean, there you go. I just kind of answered my own question with, with self-experimentation. Um, and, you know, I, I'm back to supporting Kellogg's, back, back to having Pop-Tarts, which I didn't want to do. You know, part, part of my thing, this, 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 you know, dietary cycle was to have, you know, no processed food, no sugar, that kind of thing. But at five in the morning, I can't exactly eat like a big bowl of oatmeal and then go train. So I'm eating something quick and it's, it's working. Any other thoughts or questions on the study itself or, or anything we can try to apply?
Tiffany. No, you're not. Oh, okay. I got it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I got this. Does this mean that your body absorbs the nutrients in the food more effectively in the AM than the PM? It's, it's not that it absorbs them better, Dan. It uses them better. Okay, so if that's the case, then if you work out in the morning and then eat a, a good meal right afterwards, you should get more... Uh, protein synthesis, or is that wishful thinking? Well, uh, you know, the, one of the things they did not look at here was, was tr like, a, a, it wasn't a protein study. They weren't looking at lean body mass or anything like that. They were just looking at metabolic activity. Mm -hmm. And so what, what, and it was purely for weight loss. This is in the journal of obesity. So they really don't give two shits about whether people are gaining or losing muscle. But they did through the urinalysis testing, you know, check nitrogen just to make sure there wasn't massive fluctuations. And, and I just don't think there was, there, there was nothing that, that popped out at me or nothing that they noted, but again, they weren't even training, you know, they didn't, they didn't, that wasn't a variable either. So the, the biggest thing is if you go back to my just little anecdotal study of, you know, I, I can come in here and I can train, I, I can save most of my food for evening and, and yet train in the morning. But if I, if I really support that training, cause you know, that by priming the pump of your metabolism with food before you train, you just get a better training sure. uh, session. You know, I, I can do the same thing in the afternoon. I usually, I do my cardio in the afternoon and, and, and I, I, I use the same apparatus, uh, apparati, uh, each time I, I kind of have my little metrics that I do. And I, I'm, so I'm doing the same amount of time and same levels of intensity on a, on a bike and an arc train or a treadmill. And, and the way I try to prog or progress is to, you know, beat my time or my distance. So all the variables are the same, except that I, did I go an extra half a mile or an extra 10th of a mile, or did I, you know, do this? And, um, man, I'm telling you again, like the more carbohydrate you have within reason, you know, you obviously, if your goal is body fat loss, you're not going to be eating a Big Mac before you do cardio, but, but you, you really do stimulate greater work output you know, obviously carbohydrates are ergogenic. And so they allow you to work harder. Your heart is beating harder. You're using more muscle tissue. You're burning more calories. So having enough food pre-workout is important. And then just dependent on your goals, Dan, is what you'd want to have post-workout. You know, so then you're thinking, okay, now this is a time I, I, I certainly have now that I'm having 75 grams of carbs pre-workout, I don't need a ton post-workout, but that's obviously where I'm going to have a pretty good protein um, source and, and a little bit of carbohydrate to replenish. Yeah. I just came across the study that uh, Lane Norton uh, referred to, and he showed that uh, well, that study that he looked at said that people who worked out in the AM, uh, got stronger faster than people who worked out in the PM. So I'm wondering if there's a correlation here or it's just, you know, uh, uh, happenstance that that would be the case. Because if you're using your nutrients better in the AM, you would get a, you'd get a better workout, you would get stronger faster. I mean, it seems to make sense. And testosterone is naturally higher in the morning. So that's, that's, that's a big variable that, that people have looked at for this, those same reasons. So, so I think it's both probably Dan for real. Um, yeah, it could be a perfect storm then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. That's good. Mm -hmm. All right, okay. So I have a question. Mm -hmm. 
because these people, because you said this was in the Journal of Obesity, and but these people in this study had, I think they had really good BMIs, didn't they? Um, you know, 26 to, to 20, somewhere, 19 to 26, somewhere in there. So do you think that this would be much different for obese people? Um, you know, do you think I, there'd be a greater difference? I, I will say that they, I'm trying to get to the, the people here. I want to make sure I gave you that right information here. Um, yeah, 19 to 26 on the BMI. So, uh, you know, that, that's even a pretty good range, 19 to 26. You could be 30 or, you know, so pounds overweight and be at that 20, you know, six level. But just because this was published in the Journal of Obesity doesn't mean that every study in that journal is with obese people. And so one of the things you're looking at is just biochemically, you know, they, they just wanted, I think, kind of an average homo sapien. I'm guessing because obviously for their study, they could have picked anybody. So they wanted them to at least be somewhat standardized. And since they picked a young-ish population and a healthy-ish population, I think they just wanted to eliminate comorbidities. You know, it's, it's one of the things. Matter of fact, I just answered my own question. They specifically said they wanted to eliminate health compromise and comorbidities because they didn't want any of that data to be skewed. So they just wanted to look at physiologically what's the best way to, to do this. Yep. Tiffany, can so, you, can you, oh, were, were uh, these people, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if I miss it in the, the study parameters, but were these people eating at maintenance or were they in a deficit? Um, for the study, they put them at maintenance. So they, they had kind of a, I think it was a, a 14 day washout period. And then they, they did the initial test and then seven day washout. And then they, they redid it flipping groups. So, so definitely at maintenance, you know, at least for that period of time during the study. Uh, Tiffany, jump in there quick. Real quick. Uh, you get the standard uh, email that says, Hey, I'm stuck. And it hasn't even been a week yet. And you're like looking and it's down a pound of fat. You're like, okay. So I take a look at your food logs and I see that your dinner was 80 grams of carbs and Kellogg's Frosted Flakes at midnight. And you wake up at seven o'clock in the morning for work. And those are like my favorites. Those are my favorite fixes. I just did this like three days ago. I had a girl that did this exact scenario. And I was like, hey, flip your breakfast in your dinner. And she's like, Really? It was like, yeah, I think, I think you can eat frosted flakes uh, for dinner if you wanted to. Like, I think you can do that. She was like, okay, I'm going to try it. She flipped her breakfast and her dinner exactly. Boom. She texted me today. She goes, two pounds. I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> but that's like one of my favorite fixes right now. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, I, I think one of the biggest takeaways with that, Tiffany, if, if I could just back up a couple steps is Whenever I am helping a student prepare in the National Academy of Metabolic Science for their exam or they're sending in practice case studies and we're going over it, uh, there, I have a lot of kind of if-then scenarios because I want to know how a coach is thinking you know, before I will put my certification stamp on them. And so, you know, you've been through the certification. You know that I'll say, okay, if, if a client stops losing weight for one week, what do you do? If they're just getting started and they, they feel like they're stalling, what do you do? If they, you know, I have all of these different scenarios I go through and it's, it's disheartening sometimes when coaches or 
you know, up and coming coaches will say, oh, you know, well, I'll cut calories by 100 or I'll do this, I'll do that. They're very astute, proper things, but hardly anybody starts out by saying, well, I would want to look at their food logs. I want to see what kind of food sources there are. I want to look at their meal timing. I want to see if there are any things that may lead to inaccuracy or, or less predictability. And so, yeah, before you ever just start slashing food out of the energy balance, you know, look at some of those qualitative things, it, you know, that's a hugely important thing. So yeah, well, well done just to, just to dig into some of that stuff. And obviously frosted flakes, you gotta, you gotta have them. It works. Kevin is nodding. He's like, and Reese's cereal. Burgers, pizza, Jimmy John's with you. My wife's out of town. And one of the first things I wanted to do is, is like, go, go pick up a sandwich at a drive through. And I'm like, really, are you going to be that freaking lazy? Like she, she's not even gone for 12 hours and you're already just like, can't, can't even make yourself some egg whites. I'll drive over and, and pick you up. <laughs> just take you through the drive through and I'll drive back. I'm, so now I have that opposite goal. Now I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'll just, since she's not here, I just won't eat and I'll, and I'll lose an extra pound and that'll, that'll be good. Any, uh, any other thoughts or questions on this one, guys? It, it was, like I said, I, one of the things I'm trying to do sometimes with these, I, I get a little too meta and I want to show every single nuance and every, every reason why this may be, and this might not. But I, I think just sticking to one study like this allows us to go a little bit deeper.